Well, it is uh, no doubt easy to look at our world today to arrive at the assumption or the decision that pretty much all is lost. It's common for people to bemoan the wickedness of today and, and long for the good old days. I think we've all felt that. But part of our human condition is that we tend to forget the bad and remember the good. Maybe that's a gift from God to us. This happens so often in uh, American history. If we really look at our history with eyes wide open, when exactly would we look back to as the good old days? When would we want to rewind the clock to? I suspect if I were to ask many of you, maybe many Christians, that question, the answer might be something like uh, before the decline of the traditional family. That might be a time that we point to. Not exactly sure when that is, but that might be the answer that we would get. Or maybe we would, we would say before the U.S. Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade legalizing abortion in our nation, we might look at that as a, as a, as a mile marker in our history Uh, But for those of you who uh, lived then, you probably don't have to dig too deep into your memory bank to remember that we were far from a Christ-centered utopia in those days. Our nation was on the tail end of a a decades-long war, a war which divided our country. We were in the era of psychedelics with uh, record high drug abuse numbers, highest our nation has ever seen. It was the age in which traditional marriage was cast aside amid the sexual revolution. Okay, so we need to go farther back than that. Uh, Many have labeled the 1950s as the golden age in American history, but again, there are some issues with that. For the first half of that decade, Plessy v. Ferguson was the law of the land. If you remember uh, that from high school, it allowed school districts to define certain schools as black schools and other schools as white schools. Cities could charge a person of color with a crime for going into the wrong bathroom, for drinking out of the wrong drinking fountain. And even in the decade that followed uh, Brown v. Board of Education, that decision that uh, outlawed segregation, things uh, were far from right. It was around that time that uh, the infamous Hugh Hefner launched his enterprise, Uh, opening the door to which would become a multi-billion dollar industry that has, since 1953, literally destroyed millions of families and lives. So maybe we have to go back even further. I don't think anyone has illusions of the 40s being a utopia. We were embroiled for the first half of the decade in a horrific war. The 30s were obviously challenging, record unemployment, Families standing in bread lines and praying for an opportunity to exchange their ration stamps for their much-needed supplies. The latter part of the 30s, the United States government sat on their hands, doing nothing, very much aware of a brutal madman who was rounding up minorities, exterminating them in Europe, unwilling to lend a hand, even amid reports of train cars of Jews heading to secret prison camps, And reports from our closest ally, Great Britain, who had undergone months of targeted, intense bombings. Our nation stared evil in the face and looked the other way. 
So we have to go back even, even farther. How about the 19-teens and 20s? The, the Great War ravaged Europe. Every American community essentially lost somebody to the Great War. In the teens, women were unable to vote in a large part of our nation. It wasn't until 1920 that women across the country were granted that right. And those women, once they had the right to vote, were sick and tired of the alcoholism that was ravaging our country, and so they banded together to start the prohibition movement in our country, hoping it would keep their husbands sober and out of the bar. We know how that turned out. The era of organized crime, rather than law and order ruling the streets, mobsters called the shots. And it wasn't only true in New York and Chicago. Most cities, including right here in North Dakota, had very active speakeasy scenes, gambling enterprises, red light districts. In fact, even in our state, there were red light districts active in our larger cities until the 50s or 60s. So in the teens, women couldn't be entrusted with a vote or decision-making authority. We could go back farther. We could look at the fact that in the years following the Civil War in our country, up until, uh, up until the 1920s, there were just around, uh, right around 5,000 documented public lynchings in our country, most of them black men, along with some whites who were advocating for civil rights. Or we could look at pre-Civil War America, where it was commonplace to view another human being created in the image of God as property, as someone that you could purchase like livestock. We could go on. But, but why, why stop with American history? Let, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Let's look at God's chosen people. The people of Israel. The book of Genesis. Think about some of these, some of these stories, some of these headlines from the book of Genesis. A brother kills his brother in an, in, a, in an angry fit of rage and jealousy. One of the most respected men alive gets drunk and passes out naked in his tent. A wife encourages her husband to get her servant pregnant. A twin brother deceives his father, steals his brother's birthright. There's the story of the murder of every male in a village to avenge their sister's rape. And then those very same brothers sell their younger brother into slavery and lie to their father saying that he was dead. We could go on. It's just a small sampling from Genesis. There are other, other stories in Genesis we could look at, uh, but I won't mention them this morning because there are some kids here and I don't want lunch conversations to be too awkward today. Do you see a trend? The idea of the good old days is a fallacy. It's a figment of our imagination, maybe a survival skill that God has given us. If there's one thing that's been true from the very beginning of our human existence, it's that humanity is one giant dumpster fire. Wickedness and evil have been our trademark since the beginning. Now certainly the, the ways that it reveals itself, the ways that it manifests itself, have ebbed and flowed throughout history. There have been periods that were more evil than other periods. But there has never been a time of God-centered utopia that we can look back upon with awe and longing. It just doesn't exist. 
Now, lest you think that I, that I share these thoughts because I don't like America, quite the opposite is true. I've said many times from this pulpit, and I'll say it again, that this nation has granted people more freedom and a better way of life than essentially any uh, nation in the history of nations. We should celebrate that. We should preserve that. But that doesn't mean we, we turn a blind eye to our failings. It doesn't mean that we rewrite history to try to turn us into something that we're not. We're free to be honest about, about our failures, about past sins, and, and still love this country where God has placed us. I, I share this troubled history of humanity, both in America and among the children of Abraham all the way back. We skipped a lot in that leap. Not to demonize humanity, but to make a strong and convincing point about Jesus, about the love of God, about the mercy of God to humanity. You see, because of Christ, because of what Jesus came to do and came to accomplish, we are free to be honest about our sin. We're free to be open about our failings, to be transparent about the wrongs of the past, because Jesus came to save sinners. Let's turn to God's word. Our text for today is from Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Jesus and his disciples are near Capernaum as we pick up Mark's account. Mark chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 13. This is God's word to us. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of God. Jesus came for sinners. We see that made clear in our text in a few ways. First, we see this, that, that Jesus called Levi to follow him. Look at verse 14. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, it's likely that you're not very familiar with this character, Levi, and that's partly because you know him by another name, the name Matthew, the author of one of the synoptic gospels. Levi was a tax collector in Capernaum. Capernaum was, was west of the Jordan River on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River marked the boundary between Galilee and a neighboring province. More importantly than being a, a provincial boundary, though, the Jordan signified a transition between one taxing district and another. That's important. Capernaum was situated on a major east-west Roman road. In fact, if you visit the ancient city today, you can see a, a Roman mile marker left over from this era. 
What this means is that Levi or Matthew had a lucrative business as a taxing authority. It was likely that he didn't only collect taxes from those who lived in the village, but from those who passed by on the Roman road. He would have a toll booth of sorts set up, and they would stop and pay their customs duty on whatever it is they were bringing with them. And he was free as the tax collector, as the publican, to mark up that tax to whatever he wanted it to be in order to take his cut, to make a good living. Levi was seen by those in his village as a traitor. We know that he was a Jew. His name gives that away quite clearly. But he had sold out to Rome. He wanted to get rich. He had sold out to the Roman Empire. He was, in the eyes of his neighbors, the worst of the worst. In fact, there are some ancient writings from this period that classify tax collectors in the same category as murderers. That's the level to which they were despised. I'm sure you've heard of this before, but but it's not overstated. This is not being overdramatic. In fact, there are some ancient writings from the region, and this might give you a window into why they were hated. There are some ancient writings from this very region that speak of what was known as the fish tax. So everyone who passed by Levi's toll booth with food for their family for the day, would likely have been forced to pay a tax in order to feed their family. These men were not just seen as crooked, but as wicked. And Jesus calls to Levi. As he's sitting at his tax booth to follow him. And Mark tells us that Levi rose and began following him. Now, we can assume that there was more to the conversation. Mark is very concise, as we've talked about before. We can make the assumption that there was more that went on. There was more to this conversation. But what we know is that Jesus calls and Matthew stands up from his tax booth and begins to follow Jesus. He leaves his lucrative business behind to follow the Savior. We don't know exactly why he he goes from being known as Levi to this new name of Matthew. In fact, in his gospel, he refers to himself from the beginning as Matthew. But I think there's, there's sufficient reason to assume that this name was given him, was bestowed upon him, maybe by Jesus, maybe by the other disciples. Maybe he claimed this name for himself when he left his life of treason and fraud began to follow the Savior. The name Matthew means gift from God. Jesus reaches down into the depths among the worst of the worst into the pit of society and he calls one to be his own. And Matthew walks away from his lucrative lifestyle and follows Jesus. Well, second, we see that Jesus lived his life in the company of sinners. Look at verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. If you remember our text from last week, Jesus had greatly offended the teachers of the law by claiming the authority to forgive sins. This began a growing and increasing controversy that would develop between Jesus and the religious authorities, the Pharisees, the scribes. And we see that on full display in our text for today. Jesus goes to Levi's house 
to a house that had likely been built with dirty money, with money that had been stolen. And if you remember the story of Zacchaeus, this isn't the only time that Jesus does this. I think it's safe to say that Jesus knew that that this would make the Pharisees angry. And so Jesus enjoys a meal with Levi and his fellow sinners. Now it's bad enough that, that Jesus was spending time in Galilee. Remember the Jews to the south in Jerusalem had nothing but disdain for the Galileans. Can anything good come from Nazareth, they asked. But but Jesus takes it a step further, and he doesn't even spend time with the cream of the Galilean crop. He prefers to be surrounded by those who are despised, who are hated. The Pharisees question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he stoop so low? Why does he embarrass himself in this way? Can you imagine anything worse than this? These were the people that the Pharisees shunned. They were the outcasts, and for good reason. These were people who, though most of them were raised Jewish, had walked away from practicing the faith. The Greek word that Mark uses for sinners in this text means People who do not measure up to the moral standard. These were people who were uninterested in the law of God. Who showed no desire to acknowledge or be obedient to Yahweh. These weren't typical Gentiles. These were people who knew better and chose something different. People who had been taught one thing and rejected it. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors, with those who had rejected God. A good Jew wouldn't have anything to do with these people for fear of being defiled. Now we know that Jesus lived his life in the company of sinners because that's all that there is. Whatever era of history we look to, all you can find are sinful people. I know that some of you are familiar with the ministry of Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. His work has been extremely helpful. It was a great contribution to the church. Some of you may have heard a report was released this week detailing an extensive investigation following his death that revealed decades of sexual misconduct. Are we shocked? No. Saddened, maybe? but not shocked. Every person that you meet is broken by sin. The darkest moments and the deepest struggles of your own soul are shared by every person that you meet, including pastors, including religious leaders. The question is not whether I am a sinner, but whether I know that I'm a sinner, whether I'm honest about the fact that I'm a sinner. Pretty much the only thing that I can guarantee you as your pastor is that for the rest of my life, I'm going to sin. There isn't a lot else that I can make a firm guarantee on. That I'm going to forever be in need of God's grace and be in need of your grace. The same is true for you. Jesus wasn't celebrating or condoning the sin of these men that he spent time with. Jesus was redeeming them. Jesus associated with sinners because that's all that there is. Third, we see in this text that Jesus distinguishes between 
the two groups at this dinner party. Verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. One group present at this dinner party is the sinners. They're amazed that Jesus is even sharing a meal with them. They're amazed that they got an invitation. They know full well the judgmental glances of the religious folks. So they were were shocked, I would imagine, when Jesus, of all people, wants to eat with them. Those in this group know that they don't measure up. They know that Jesus is breaking all of the social and religious norms by having a meal with them. They are the undeserving, the messy, the miscreants, the outcast, the unclean. These are the ones that the religious people would point to and warn their children to stay away from. The second group at the dinner party that night are those that Jesus labels as the righteous. Now, quite likely, he is uh, using that phrase in in sort of a tongue-in-cheek manner. These people are also in awe that evening, but for different reasons. They are shocked at who Jesus is giving his attention to. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does Jesus defile himself with those who are so undeserving, with those who don't take God seriously, with those who have done all of these evil things? Why would Jesus willingly spend time with people who had made a career out of taking advantage of others? Why would Jesus soil his reputation by having dinner with people who want nothing to do with God, who are living in sin? You see, not much has changed. Church people today have bought into this very same lie that these religious people of Jesus' day believed. They they believed that their enemies... That their opponents in life were the ones who rejected God. They believed that the immoral, that the sinners, were the problem of society. That those who had no time for the things of God, no time for the worship of the Lord, no time for anything that God desired, were the enemy. That those who looked different, acted different, believed differently, were to be looked down upon, to be judged, to be rejected. It's a lie that Christians believe to this day. People out there are not the enemy. They're the ones that Jesus wanted to have dinner with. They're the ones that Jesus wanted to give his gift of grace to. They're the ones that Jesus hung on the cross for. These two groups present at the dinner party. The sinners reclining at the table with Jesus and the righteous people standing outside staring judgmentally To which group do you belong? With which group do you have more in common? The religious folks blinded by their own self-righteousness, trusting in their own works, looking down their noses at undeserving sinners? Or those around the table with Jesus who know they don't belong? In awe of the fact that Jesus even paid them any attention, Not a moral leg to stand on, eating with Jesus, 
purely on account of his love and his grace and his mercy. To which group do you belong? With which group do you have more in common? What Jesus shows us at this awkward dinner party, the home of Matthew the tax collector, is that only sinners have a use for the Savior. If you're taking any credit, any pride in your standing before God, you're quite likely in the company of those outside the party. Staring in judgmentally. Only sinners have use for a savior. You see, every Sunday in every church, Pharisees and scribes walk through the doors. Confident that they have everything together. Confident that they are smarter than others, that they are more righteous than others. That, they, that certainly God is more pleased with them. They look at all that they've done. They, they know that they've worked hard to live a good life. That they've followed all of the rules. That they've given a lot of money to the church. Whatever, whatever it is. And the evil one will whisper into their ear that very morning as they sit in that church. That Jesus' words are for them. Not for you. If we're honest, there is part scribe. Part Pharisee. In each of us. And it needs to be crucified. It needs to be left at the cross. Only sinners and only tax collectors, only those who know how undeserving they are, have use for a Savior. I'll be honest, as a pastor, some of my most heartbreaking conversations that I have are are with people who have been sitting in these chairs for decades and can't see that their hearts are hard. They are the Pharisees and the scribes in the story. Only sinners and tax collectors, only those who know how undeserving they are, have use for a Savior. If you're here this morning and you know you you haven't been pulling it off, you know you don't deserve a seat at the table, you know that the title sinner is very fitting for you, then you are in a pretty good place and you're in pretty good company. Jesus is reclining at the table next to you. Offering you his grace. Offering you his righteousness as a gift to be received by faith. If you know your sin and you know how undeserving you are, then the kingdom of God is open to you. Then the great banquet feast of heaven is laid out before you. But If you find yourself looking down your nose, confident in what you've done and who you've become, proud of your spiritual accomplishments and contributions, Boasting in how well you've cleaned up, in the life that that you've managed to make for yourself. And the message of Jesus for you today is a hard one. I came not to call the righteous. Jesus says, I didn't come to try to argue with people who have convinced themselves that they're healthy into thinking that they need a physician. Jesus came for sinners. This is such good news because it releases us from the life sentence in the prison of trying to prove that we can pull this off. Of of trying to somehow prove to others that we're actually as righteous as we claim to be. There's freedom in confessing that you're a sinner. 
The proof of the gospel's power, I want you to hear this, the proof of the gospel's power is not in me somehow becoming more holy or more moral or more well-behaved. The proof of the gospel's power is that a sinner like me has a place at the table. Jesus came for sinners, of whom I am chief. It's a beautiful 250-year-old hymn says, Come ye weary. Hear those words. Come ye weary. Heavy laden. Bruised and battered by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Weary sinner. You're invited to the dinner party. If you think you belong, you never will. But if you know you don't, come and recline at the table with Jesus. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, you know that there's no person in this room today who's worthy. Who's worthy to recline at the table with you. There is nobody here this morning who isn't in need of the great physician, that there is no person here who can stand on their own righteousness. So we confess to you this morning our sin and our self-righteousness and our self-dependence. We confess our desire, our prevailing desire to save ourselves. We confess that we have thought at times that we don't really need a Savior. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us of our self-righteousness. Forgive us of our judgment of others. Lord, in your great mercy, remove any sense of self-reliance, self-confidence, self-righteousness. We repent. We leave those things at the cross. Lord, we thank you that you called Levi to follow you. We thank you that you have dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And that you have called us. So it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.